Hello and welcome back to the Tell Me If You Can podcast. Today's guest is Kim Heil. Kim is a mother of two and an associate producer and casting director at the San Diego Repertory Theater. In today's episode, we talk about her pursuit of a career in performing arts that was outside of traditional expectations. She talks about pursuing her passion and her role as a woman of color in championing equity in the performing arts space. Let's take a listen to Kim's story. Kim, welcome to the podcast. For those of us that don't know who you are, can you just give us a quick bio, what you do, where you're from, a little bit about you? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ogechi. It's so great to be here. My name is Kim Heil, and I live in San Diego, California. I work for a local professional theater company. Uh, My title is associate producer and casting director. So I am primarily in charge of casting our shows. So I run auditions and um, distribute, you know, casting notices, things like that. Um, But the associate producer part of my job is actually the catch all title because I do so many other things. So I, Um, I produce theater, but that's everything from, you know, it's like event planning, but it's also budgeting and it's also scheduling and um, making sure everyone's happy and that people are meeting deadlines. So it's a very sort of um, it's like a it's like the job that that everyone um, goes to or looks to if there's the one task that doesn't seem to be assigned to any one job, the associate producer (laughs) seems to get it. Um, in addition, um, I'm also, uh, well, I I was an actress, um, as a young adult, and then I transitioned into this administrative, um, role, but, um, I actually returned to acting a couple years ago, but, um, (laughs) it was kind of a, it was very difficult to go back to it. It's not quite like riding a bike, like they say. And, um, and I'm a mom, which is my other full-time job. I have a 15 year old and a 12 year old. And so, so mother working full-time and now working from home while the kids are at home, it's all been very challenging. Um, but also my, my sort of passion project right now, which I started two months ago is that I started a podcast. It's not a podcast really. It's like an Instagram live interview series, um, just because I'm not technologically minded. So I found that IG live was really easy to use. Um, and I interview artists about their financial lives because one of my obsessions is financial literacy. And I have found that it is a conversation that's really, really lacking among artists. And particularly, it's the reason, I believe, why a lot of families of color, a lot of communities of color don't feel like the arts are uh, viable careers for their young ones, because what they know to be arts careers um, is the stereotype starving artist. So there's this image in people's heads that if you're an artist, you're not able to pay your rent. Um, you are living in squalor. And I know certainly my parents thought this when I started. (laughs) 
Um, and the truth is, though, is that, um, you know, I have been fortunate enough to work uh, with a number of artists who have made really good livings out of what they do. And so what I wanted to showcase, not just to people of color, but really to anyone who's willing to listen, mm -hmm. um, is that it is possible to make a really good living um, as an artist. And I wanted to show the many, many different ways how people can actually do that. Um, and so I started interviewing artists. And right now uh, I have about, I think I have 10, maybe nine or 10 interviews there because I only started a couple months ago um, of artists who range from dancers to musicians to um, actors and writers and poets. And so um, they all have theater in common and that's how I know them. But a lot of them have done other uh other artistic disciplines. And I asked them about how they've made it work. And so that has been a really wonderful pet project of mine. And my hope is that that will also evolve into something larger, who knows what. But right now, I'm just having a great time talking to artists and finding out how they make their money work for them. That is so awesome. I think um you for sure should start a podcast or like a youtube series who knows but <laughs> i think this is a great um way to really expose different kinds of finances and i love that you found like a very specific topic that relates to barriers to people feeling comfortable to pursuing their passions and i'm excited to see how this grows um so as someone that has a deep career in theater and the arts, was that always your goal growing up? And how did that compare to your family's expectations for you? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's interesting. I started off, um, so when I was little, I had, um, I was pigeon-toed, you know, when your feet are turned in. Yes. And um, and so my, my parents uh, really they did not have a tradition of like going to dance class or going to, you know, choir or anything like that. Um, so it really wasn't something that was, um, that really came to them naturally. But because I was pigeon toed, our pediatrician told my parents, you should put her in ballet class. And so they put me in ballet class, not because, you know, for the reasons that a lot of parents put their kids in ballet class now, which is it's culture, it's artistic, it's good, you know, it, it looks good for, you know, college applications, whatever. Um, for me, it was because they didn't like the way I walked. So they put me <laughs> in dance class. And um, lo and behold, uh, you know, three-year-old um, Kim loved it. And was a total ham. And so they discovered that I love to dance. And I discovered how much I love to dance. Um, so that led to years and years of ballet training. Now, did they ever, did it ever occur to them that, oh, this is something she wants to do? No, because in the Philippines, oh, and I should have mentioned that I am a, a Filipino-American. Um, and actually the hyphen American part of that uh, statement uh, only came in 1998, 98 or 99 mm. is when I was naturalized. So I came to the U.S. Um, as a as a uh, green card holder in uh, 1992 to go to college. Um, but um, anyway, so <laughs> that was kind of a segue into something else. 
Um, no, but yeah, fine. as a Filipino, um, the arts is not something that you tell your parents you want to pursue. It's simply not a stable uh, career path that any um, <laughs> any reasonable Filipino would allow their child to do. So I, it never even entered my mind, to be honest, at the time um, when I was a kid that dancing could ever really be like my full-time career, although I loved it so much. Um, but um, it, it just, I just kind of knew that like, at some point I am going to give this up for something else. And oh, wow. so I did, however, also discover singing and then I discovered acting and then by the time I was in high school, I was like full blown, like Broadway geek. Like I loved anything Broadway. And my dad actually loves theater also. So we would, um, we, we actually lived in Indonesia. So I'm Filipino. I was born in the Philippines. But when I was six, my family moved us to Jakarta, Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And I lived there until I was 17. And, um, as is a very typical sort of expat lifestyle, um, I call it first world privilege. We traveled quite a bit because my father's job, you know, allowed us to, um, you know, afford basically international travel for the whole family. So we traveled quite a bit and we came to the U.S. quite a bit. And that's when I started seeing professional theater and I started seeing Broadway shows because my dad would take all of us. And I just loved it. I love theater. I, you know, it was sort of where I found my tribe, the kind of people that I connected with, they were all theater people or artists of some kind. You know, they either love singing or they love dance. But in the back of my mind, I always thought I'm going to give this up someday because this is not, this is not viable. I'm not going to be able to make a living off of this. Like, who do I know who makes a living off of this? Nobody. Oh, that's not true. I had one, I had one um, actor who I idolized and has since become someone I know personally, which is kind of funny, but her name is Leia Salonga, and she was the Filipino international theater star, and wow. um, and she starred in the first uh, production in London of Miss Saigon. Now, just to tell you, like, how sort of representation was lacking sorely back then in the, um, I guess that would have been, like, in the 80s, in the mid-80s, Mm-hmm. Um, so Miss Saigon is a story of, it's actually, uh, an adaptation of Madame Butterfly. Um, but it's set in Vietnam. It's about a young girl who falls in love with an American soldier. She has his child, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, this role that Leia Salonga played, um, her name was Kim. So I thought it was fate. So I wanted to be Kim someday. Someday I wanted to be Kim because that was the one role that a girl like me who looked like me could play. There was no other role in theater. Uh, I kind of looked, you know, at uh, different shows that I was aware of, like, oh, that terrible show, Flower Drum Song. (laughs) (laughs) And um, and then there were like, oh, South Pacific had, um, oh, and King and I. So those are like the three other shows. Yes, yes. Four Broadway shows or four musicals where I was like, okay, those are the roles I could play. Mind you, those roles are so problematic in so many ways, not just perpetuating 
uh, excuse me, white supremacy and abject racism, but also like the misogyny and the uh, sexism that's so embedded in these stories. It's so problematic. But that didn't matter to, you know, 16-year-old Kim, who just loved theater so much and was willing pretty much to do anything. Um, it didn't even occur to me the political implications of any of those those roles. I just wanted to, you know, do theater. Um, and my parents sort of encouraged it, but not really. I mean, they, they kind of humored me. Um, and so by the time I, it was time for me to choose a major in college, I chose psychology and not theater because I knew one day I'm going to have to have a real job. You know, I'm going to have to have a backup career because, you know, this theater thing, it's probably not going to pay me enough. I don't know. It's not like anyone actually told me that to my face. It was just, the rhetoric that surrounded arts careers. Um, So yeah, so I definitely was not planning on sort of uh, pursuing and studying theater in college. And so I got a degree in psychology. And I will tell you now that it's very helpful to have a degree in psychology in the arts. Um, (laughs) But, but, um, you know, if I went back, if I, if I had the opportunity to go back, would I, would I have studied it? Maybe. Because I think that sense of not really committing to something uh, will cost you, you know, not fully um, committing your time and your energy to the training. And there's a lot of training that is necessary to rise to the top in the theater industry. And I I didn't do that. You know, I chose to pursue something else. And I, I think I paid for it in some ways. Yes, I, I completely understand. Um, when you make that mental decision that this is not going to be your full-time passion. You almost set yourself up to be incomplete in pursuing whatever. It obviously set your heart on fire and you were so happy about it. And you sought out so many shows and ways to put out this creative energy. And, but you mentally held yourself back. And it's interesting that your parents never told you not to do that, but you, it was unspoken. It was, it was almost an unspoken rule or belief that you absorbed and internalized and then it set you on this path that was different than what you really were passionate about. So how did you go from being a psychology major and graduating with that degree and then going into theater as a profession? Well, it's kind of funny because I graduated, I got my bachelor's degree in psychology and I just worked um, really sort of just to make money as mm-hmm. a um, as a as an administrative assistant at my father's office, so my father uh, worked for a company in LA, and so they hired me as sort of a temp worker. I mean, it was never really intended to be like a career track, um, but I I just you know did a lot of paperwork and data entry and that sort of thing, and I was very unhappy there. Um, and in my mind, I thought, well, I. I should probably think about what my next steps are as a psychology graduate, you know? And, but the thing was, and and the reality actually is, is that when you pursue a science or if you pursue something that is, you know, mental health related, there's further steps, right? So you, you go to graduate school and you get your hours of, of uh, training as a as a therapist or what whatever it is, there's like you don't graduate and all of a sudden become a therapist. You have to you have to put in more time 
uh, mm-hmm. to educate yourself further in the field. And I just wasn't interested in that. It was sort of like, okay, I already gave up four years for this. Like, I don't want to give up anymore. Um, and I was really unhappy. And actually, to my father's credit, he kind of noticed that I was unhappy. And wow. um, and I, so at the time, this is now uh, mid-90s. At the time, you know, we didn't have the internet yet. There was no, there were no like internet audition listings yet. Everything was still paper. So I was reading what's called Backstage West. And it's a, it's a trade. It's a, one of those like weekly news, news uh, letters or newspapers that had all the, the audition notices for aspiring actors. And I bought them regularly just to sort of read them and be aware, but also because I was just interested in the industry. And he saw me looking at one and, and, you know, this is someone who worked with me in the same office. So I could tell, I, I mean, he could tell that I was just so desperately unhappy. And he said, why don't you audition for something? And I think that was my, I needed to hear that because I needed to hear from him the head of my family, that it was okay now that I was a, an adult, now that I was a grown-up, it was okay to to do theater. Um, wow. And I took that as, as a kind of blessing in some ways. And he, um, so he encouraged me and I said, okay, I'm going to do it. So I auditioned. And the first audition, now it was a community theater and it wasn't paying, but I got it. And it was my first audition in LA, out of school, and um, and I got it, and uh, and so I, I did a show, and actually, ironically, at this around the same time, I was actually inter- interviewing with um, other places, so I actually interviewed for a, um, <laughs> a suicide hotline um, operator, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't end up doing that. Obviously, I couldn't do that, uh, and then I also interviewed to be a residential advisor for a home for people for young people sort of coming out of prison um I mean it was all like work that maybe I could have done with just a psychology degree uh but but certainly I I just could feel it in my gut that it wasn't what I wanted to do even though I'd be interviewing for these things and so when I got the job or when I got the gig as uh, in, in this show, which was Man of La Mancha, um, and really it was a chorus role, but I had so much fun. And that really put me back into the uh, community of artists and actors and musical theater performers in Los Angeles. Uh, and that that got my whole career started again. That is so cool. It's almost like you received permission from your father and it was kind of you had been hesitant and holding yourself back and he kind of allowed you to step into that and just that little taste again reignited that fire for you that's amazing um yeah I think that um I think oh I'm sorry no no Um, go ahead I just wanted to say I think that and now I am a parent you know um and um you know, I, I don't I don't blame my parents for wanting me to pursue a stable line of work like that makes a lot of sense to me. And especially, like I said, especially now I have my own kids, so I get it. I get, you know, wanting your children 
to be financially secure and not have to worry and, you know, be in a safe job and all of those things. So I, I totally understand why my, my parents encouraged me to pursue something other than the arts. But I think what, where my, where my dad just eventually, you know, gave in <laughs> to my love for theater was that above all of that, he wanted me to be happy and he could tell that I wasn't. And he knew theater makes her happy. So I think that that is something that, um, you know, that we have to remember is that, of course, we have our ideas of what success and and fulfillment should look like. Um, but I'm grateful that my my father was willing to sort of think differently about it in order to help me in that moment. Um, yes. And that that gave me the, like you said, it gave me the permission to move ahead with theater. That is so cool. I think um, it's funny now your perspective change as a parent and how yeah. that little action that may not have been such a big deal for your dad really transformed your the trajectory of your life. And your career path, um, what have been some difficulties in the industry, especially an industry that, like you said, not much has changed since the 90s in terms of representation, especially Asian representation in theater and in TV and movies. What has been some difficulties and how do you think that your role, especially as an associate producer and casting director, has um, helped with that? Well, so in the mid 90s, um, there were, you know, like you said, just so few opportunities for people of color to have lead roles on TV and theater. Um, it just was as though the the most we could hope for was like the office worker on Friends who had like, you know, what what we call under five, like under five lines in an ep episode. Like that was sort of the pinnacle of what we all could hope for. Um, wow. And so I have to say, though, that so this is this is, I think, one of the key things about how we can move forward in dismantling <laughs> white supremacy and racism um, is that we need to remember the value and the importance of affinity spaces in, uh, you know, industries all across the board, not just the arts. And the reason I say that is because I think I always thought that being American meant that you could be neutral. Okay. So this is, sounds very mm. weird, but like, but like I grew up in an international environment in Indonesia. I went to an international school and we had people from all over the world, um, who went to school there. So I went to school with people from the UK, people from Australia, people from Korea, people from India, people from, you know, um, gosh, all over the place, you know, and all the different continents. And what stood out to me 
which I think is, I, I have been doing quite a bit of unpacking my, how I've been colonized. And, um, but, but the thing that I sort of learned was that to be white and to be American meant that you were a blank slate, meant that you were neutral, meant that you could be whatever you wanted to be and you could sort of, you know, the world was your oyster. Whereas all the rest of us, this is so strange now that I'm talking about it out loud. I mean, I've talked about this quite a bit with with friends and family, but every time I talk about it, I always discover something new. I felt like the international aspect of my upbringing showed me that people, okay, showed me first of all that I could not be colorblind because my Filipino-ness was as much a part of me as, you know, my hair being black. Like it it was not something I could just take out, take away. It was an indelible part of who I was. Just as my classmate who was born and raised in India and was Indian, South Asian, I should say, that that was a real part of them, right? That their culture was deeply embedded in their character. But the Americans didn't feel like they had that identity. Like they didn't have cultural practices that were unique. I don't know. Like, I, I guess I kind of looked at everyone as like, I looked at white Americans as like, oh, you're the, you're the, you know, you can just sort of roam the world and not be anything, you know, but I'm Filipino. Like I will always be Filipino. And so-and-so is Korean. They will always be Korean. And so-and-so is Indian. They will always be like, there was something about that way of looking at things that was so bizarre for me, but normal. Um, And so when I became an adult in Hollywood, I, I was not, it was not foreign to me, this concept of being Asian, right? In a very, like, you, you could not erase my Asian-ness. So therefore, the fact that a role could be played by an Asian person, you know, this idea of colorblind casting that became popular in, in Hollywood, like in the 80s and 90s, actually, I think it started in the 70s. You know, this idea that like this role, the way it's written, can be played by anybody, can be played by Asian, can be played by Black, can be played by Mexican. Like it, that idea to me was a little like, but you're erasing me. Yes. <laughs> because my Asianness is such a part of who I am, right? Yes. And so I could not navigate the industry with this idea that I could be neutral. I could never be like a white American. I could never be neutral, right? Um, So when I found my affinity space in Los Angeles, which was a theater called East West Players, and they're still around. It's one of the oldest Asian American theater companies in the U.S. It was like just a breath of relief, right? Just feeling like, okay, here are people who understand what it means to be Asian, who understand what what it means to be brown in this incredibly white industry. And we're going to talk about it in a really authentic way that recognizes how unique we are 
recognizes the challenge of working in this industry and maybe can even innovate the way people are looked at, right? The way we talked about ourselves and each other, there was something really exciting about that to me. And it was also very safe. It was also very like, I didn't have to code switch as hard. (laughs) Ooh, girl, yes. (laughs) And so you don't realize how much energy you spend code switching until you're in a community space and you can just be in all of your... Beautiful right. I can't even tell you like I would go to someone's house and I'd see all their shoes by the door because because a lot of Asian cultures don't like to wear shoes inside the house. And I would breathe that sigh of relief like I'm with my people <laughs> <You know? laughs> because because that was just that was just knowing like, OK, we can we can vibe on the same level here. And. Anyway, okay, so the safety that that provided, that safety that the affinity space provides, it's like it's like lifeblood, right? Because you go back to it and you're like, okay, I'm not crazy, I'm not weird. I'm I'm just another person and I, you know, I have this existence in this world and other people understand it. Okay. And then you can start talking about ways to to disrupt that, right? And so I actually was with in the mid nineties, a group of young Asian American artists, and they were all like from different cultures, Korean, Japanese, um, Hawaiian, um, South Asian. Like we were, we were very mixed. It wasn't just Filipino. It wasn't just Chinese. It was, it was very mixed Asian. Um, And that group of people have gone on to some really terrific careers. And I think, I, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I think that was because and the the part of our success can be attributed to the sense of understanding who we are that that we knew that we could not ever erase our ethnicity that we could never navigate the world as a neutral human being now i know now that nobody can but at the time you know it felt like okay we are we're a we're a very specific flavor and that's okay. And guess what? The industry needs to adapt to us. The industry needs to grow and build some chairs at the table for us. That table needs to expand. And no, all the change didn't happen, you know, in the space of a year or five years or even 10 years. It has taken many, 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 many years for change to happen. And I am seeing it now. I'm seeing things like when I watch a movie um, like Never Have I Ever, which Mindy Kaling uh, produced, um, that my daughter can watch that. My daughter who is Asian, uh, half Asian, half Caucasian, um, she can see actors on the screen now who look like her. And, And it's completely like, I mean, I hate to say normal because what the hell is normal, but it's it's been normalized. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's been it's an ex, it's more of an acceptable practice now. So so that to me is progress. When my daughter can turn on the TV and just choose a TV series geared to young adults and see people who look like her, that is change because that never happened to me. Um, and I think it is because of 
the work that I became a part of in that affinity space in the mid nineties. And I shouldn't say that I shouldn't take any credit. Like it's just my generation. It was, it was a generation even before ours that started gathering in like the, in the sixties and seventies and then sort of slowly paved the way and built this foundation of this affinity space. But, but boy, oh boy, that I really do think that um, that helped me to, uh, propel myself into this industry that was incredibly white and and just forge ahead in spite of that. That is, I mean, that is so amazing. And you're right. It's not just the work of your generation and it won't be the work of this current generation. That cumulative effort, that cumulative, there was someone that was the only Asian person in that room that chose to be brave enough to be that sole representer in, um, I think it's amazing that now to create content, you have to think about diversity. But now I think the next step will be not just having diverse looking faces, but diverse stories, voices, experiences. Um, I think especially when you look at TV, you will see Black people on TV, but what roles are they given? What roles are they playing? And now it's being called out. We don't always want to play... Um, the slave figure. We don't always want to be the thug in some police action thriller. We want to be the protagonist. We want to have complex stories. The black best friend in the sitcom needs to have a backstory. She's not just a place marker for diversity for your sitcom. So you can say, oh, we have black characters or Asian characters or Hispanic characters, but they have complex stories that mean something. And so not just seeing someone that looks like you, but seeing someone that looks like you with a story that you might be able to identify with. I, one of my favorite, um, I watch a lot more sitcoms in theater. So That's okay. <laughs> I should watch more theater. One of my favorite is Fresh Off the Boat. Um, oh, yeah. Just because it's, well, I love comedy. And also because in the stories that he tells, I identify a lot with them as like a first generation immigrant. I came as a baby with my parents and some of the expectations and the strictness of the parents I can see in my parents. And I think it's just interesting that if we kept telling the same kind of family sitcom stories, we would never know, we would never really get to see that on primetime TV. And so even though I am not Asian American, I identify more with that sitcom than some of the other sitcoms that even the ones that might have, Black Americans because of that unique immigrant experience that we share in that story. So I think the complexity of stories is really important. I think that's the next wave of inclusion in the arts. Yeah, you know, you mentioned something that I think is important to remember about the arts, which is that story and any kind of artistic product, right, be it a painting or um, musical recording. So any any piece of art, once it's out in the world, it gets claimed, right? Yes. By the viewer. And then it becomes whatever that viewer needs it to be. And, and I love that you talk about how, in some ways that you related more to this family's experience, you know, in Fresh Off the Boat, this Chinese American family. Um, uh, and and more so, you know, maybe than than like a, a, a sitcom with um, I don't know 
the Cosby show, who knows, whatever. Um, but I, I get that because here's something really strange. So I'm kind of an Anglophile, which I find weird in some ways, but I love <laughs> London and I love the UK. I, there's something about the sort of, you know, Jane Austen romanticism about it that I, that I sort of love. And I started watching Downton Abbey like years ago, and I just loved it so much. And I was like, why do I love this? This has nothing to do with me. These are the original, you know, colonial, you know, like this is, this is so against the fiber of who I am. Like, why do I love this so much? Um, and I think what I realized is that it actually speaks to the very strict classic, uh, structures of Asian society in that it's so hierarchical in the same way. Like, oh, so Downton Abbey, there's like the upstairs, downstairs, there's like the rich Mm -hmm. family. And then there's the serving class that actually lives literally below them in the basement kind of thing. And in the third world, um, and, you know, in, in Manila, when I, where I grew up as a, as a, young, young child. And then again, in Indonesia, growing up as a teenager, we had servants, you know, and there was a separation. And there was, there were um, expectations. And there was a code that you were expected to adhere to both in your behavior and your beliefs. And you did not become friends with your servants. You spoke to them mm. in a certain way. So all of those things, I was like, oh my gosh, this is why Downton Abbey speaks to me. Because it, even though it's completely, you know, different time, different part of the country, I mean, sorry, different part of the world, it still had that same hierarchical structure that I'd grown up with that I didn't even realize was sort of, you know, in me. Um, and I clearly was like, kind of living through some of the, the, you know, that social contract that people had among classes um, in Downton Abbey, I, I sort of experienced in my own way. So I was like, okay, I can, now I understand, like, now I can see how this very white, you know, (laughs) um, (laughs) experience on film or on TV is like speaking to me because even though it looked totally different, um, I lived through a, a, something that that is a version of this. In fact, wow. I don't know if you've seen the movie Crazy Rich Asians. Oh, yes. Love but it. That world <laughs> is very much like now I was not crazy rich, but I have very I many. I was going to ask you because of the, the, the same countries are in that movie. Right. And Similar, and yes. so and and I actually spent quite a bit of time in Singapore, which the movie is set in because um my parents lived in Singapore for many years. And so I'm very familiar with that culture. And, um, but that, that kind of wealth and that kind of societal, uh, you know, structure of class and education and that, that actually I'm very familiar with too. And so, you know, it was kind of like, when people were talking about the movie that when it came out, people would talk about it as like, Oh my God, that's so outrageous. You know, the displays of wealth. Oh, oh." and I was like, yeah, I had people, I knew people like that, you know, like I totally grew up with that. I mean, it wasn't me per se, but I saw it. So it was just very interesting. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that movie was kind of like, I think in that same year or the same couple of years, that movie came out 
um, because of the popularity of the book and the series. And then to all the boys that I've ever loved, I think that's the title uh, of the to, Netflix. To, to all the boys I've loved before. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And then the second one, um, I think that kind of like created this extra wave of more representation and people were like, we love this. Where is there more of this? And that gap or that lack of existence in um, movies was highlighted because of how amazing and successful that movie was. And I still right. think that there's needs to, there hasn't been something as successful with such a majority Asian cast since then. And it, it needs right. to happen, but it was, it was almost like Hollywood took a chance and then they reaped the rewards because people were thirsting yes. for that. They were so hungry for that. Obviously right. not Absolutely. everyone can identify with the characters because how many of us are crazy rich in general, but just <laughs> seeing people that look like you. And like you said, you knew people that lived like them is was so cool. And then I was such a sap and watched both of the, to all the boys I've loved before. Yeah. It reminded me of my former self. I was such like, I mean, that's another story. Maybe it's another a, a bonus episode or something. <laughs> but I had way too many crushes that I'm not even comfortable sharing. And so I, I identified <laughs> with being a hopeless romantic as a teenager. Yeah, um, yeah. And even though I don't look like her at all, but I was so happy. My two best friends are Asian American. And I just like, I just, it was cool to see people that look like my friends on TV. Absolutely. And I, I think that continues, that needs to continue to happen. Um, yes. In your roles as like a casting director, are there ways that you can help or that you choose to consciously or subconsciously help promote representation in theater? Absolutely. And I'll tell you, you know, one of the, one of the potential sort of, what's the word? I want to say pitfall. I don't know if pitfall is the right word, but it, it's, it's what I'm seeing right now. So we're in a moment, right? We can agree that we are in a moment right now where social justice is a very hot topic of conversation, um, you know, racial inequality, all of those things are coming to the fore in public discourse, as it should. You know, the, the murders of young Black men and women have been go going on for years. And so now it has exploded in our, in our country as it should. Um, it should have exploded way before now, but you know what? Let's take it. Let's just take it now and and deal with it. And it's a it's a really hard time, um, but it has to be hard in order for it and for us to grow. Okay, so I said all of that. However, in for me personally, I need to, as a person of color, it's very easy to say, okay, I'm a POC. I belong to the BIPOC community, therefore. I inherently have a perspective that is woke, that is that is progressive, and I understand racism. And you know what? I, as a Filipino American woman, I cannot solve racism. And what troubles me is that I see I see my peers, I see my colleagues, I see people of color around me who speak as though they've already gotten it figured out. And I think that's dangerous. And so mm. I have, and I, cause I think that the work is ongoing. It is ongoing. And there's like many, many layers of 
dismantling systemic racism that have to happen before any of us can claim to be woke. Um, but I say that because as a casting director and um, as a leader in the local theater community in San Diego, uh, quite a few people have looked to me for guidance and how to quote unquote do this right. How do we how do we cast a show with an with an eye towards equity, diversity, and inclusion? Mm. And I am so like it's it's flattering, I guess. Um, now, part of the reason why they come to me is because for quite a few people, I am the only person of color in their orbit yes. to begin with, right? Yes. So they and think I have all the pressure. answers. It's a lot oh of pressure. Goodness. And the, the number of times I have had to say, I am not an expert in this. Like, I, I can only do what my experience tells me to do, right? And I don't have the experience of a Black person in America. That is a totally different experience from mine. Um, so for me to be like some kind of spokesperson for the BIPOC community is very dangerous, Okay, mm -hmm. so I just want to put that out there because I don't like to to feel like I can represent anyone beyond me in the way that I think about things. But in terms of casting, right, in terms of how do we tell stories with bodies of color that can be in service both to the story, but also to the audience in some really effective and beneficial way? How do we do that? And I'll tell you, it has to start with the self-interrogation of what my own biases are. And I'll give you an yes. example. So I was criticized, not personally, but my company was criticized. Um, now, my company is incredibly like conscious and we have very robust conversations about race constantly. And in fact, it's a little exhausting at times, but it's good. It's very, very good. Um our, so what we call our season, right? So we, we have six shows in the season and all of this is all blown up in the air because of COVID. But let's just, let's just say for the, if it were normal times, we yes. have six shows that we offer throughout our season and it's about a 10 month season. And, um, and I usually cast at least four, if not five of those shows, because usually one show is a one person show that doesn't need additional casting. So um, and every show, we have a really, really rigorous conversation about how to cast it, you know, so can we open this up and how and why to different ethnicities? Or if we're making this a colorblind, quote unquote, decision, does that erase someone's ethnicity? And do we want to do that? Is that, is that um, you know, is it worth doing that? Or is that going to hurt the story? Is that going to harm communities who identify as this particular, uh, you know, color or race or what have you. Um, and it's not just race. It's also LGBTQIA+. Um, it's also communities of ability and disability. Um, it's, it's also uh, gender, you know. I mean, it's just, there's just so many attributes to examine when we are talking about how do we cast one character, but we have that conversation and there are some decisions that are 
already informed by the story. Okay, so this story is telling, like, for instance, there's a play called Sweat by Lynn Nottage. And it's very um, specific to a time in history, in a very specific region, and very specific racial experiences. There are uh, characters in there who are Black, and they have to be Black because that is how the story is told. And there are also, and and in and because of the way the story unfolds, there have to be white people. Um, so that play, it's very clear. It's very clear to me, like, okay, these people have to be Black. These people have to be white. That is part of the story. Okay, done, right? So I can sort of run that those auditions in a very specific way. Then there's a play called A Doll's House Part Two, uh, which is a riff of a sort of sequel to the original A Doll's House by Henrik Ibsen. But this sort of ideological riff that is the part two, it doesn't quite exist in a re- in a realistic space. It's sort of a almost like an ideological argument come to life through mm-hmm. these four characters. And when it was done on Broadway, they chose to cast it quote unquote colorblind. Even though three of them are family members, so you can make the argument well they have to be they have to look related. But in the case of the Broadway production that was not an issue. They were like, nope, we're going to have two. We're going to have a, you know, a white character who's the the woman and the father is going to be also a white character and their daughter is going to be black. And that is just the way it is. That's that's the sort of um, magical world that this play lives in. And we looked at that and we didn't take that as gospel. We didn't look at that and say, well, Broadway did it. Therefore, we have to do it this way. We read the script. We we understood their reasons for doing it. We discussed if those reasons applied to what the way we wanted to tell the story. And we decided, yes, they did. And so we also had a very um, diverse cast in that uh, in our production of that. But again, the, the idea of are we erasing or are we highlighting? What are we saying? You know, so so the conversation is very loaded. Um, and so every play is treated uh, really individually, like they don't exist in the same conversation. Yes. And so we had a play. So I was just actually going to tell the story of this one play that I cast and, um, and all the characters are related except for one character who's the boyfriend of the daughter. And we chose to cast him as a white person. So the whole cast was white. And we got a lot of criticism for that decision because the idea was, well, that character is not related to this white family, even though this is a very realistic story. That character is not related to the white family. Therefore, why isn't that actor a person of color? And I had to really look back on the way I looked at that role. And what I realized is that I have biases. For one, for one thing, that role was um, very privileged. So the whole story kind of was about how this family was lower middle class and kind of suffering um, economically. And here's this one character who comes from wealth, comes from money, comes from privilege, who's trying to sort of enter this, this family through his relationship with their daughter. And and in my mind, I was like, well, he's got to be white because he's so privileged. He's oh. so privileged and he's so wealthy. And I was like, and so so fast forward a couple months later when people are like, why couldn't he? Be? And I was like, why couldn't he? 
And I realized I was like, oh, because in my head, privilege equals white. And I really need to question that because there are lots of other cultures in this world who are privileged who are not white. And and so when I, you say privilege, you meant, so because we, we talk about white privilege and white privilege is different than what I think you're talking about, which is um, just wealthiness or having financial means or of being of high, higher statute. Yeah, it's a little more complicated than money. There's also yes. there's conversation about mental health. Yes. Um, and here's another thing that I realized, like in my family, mental health was not discussed uh, growing up. In fact, I don't even know if like it existed beyond our experience of the church. Like my mother's my mother would often talk about like, you know, well, father so and so thinks this, <laughs> you okay. know, as though they were like a medical professional. And so so in this play, that character actually has um, talks about his mental health. And so in my mind, I was like, well, if he were a person of color, that family wouldn't have that conversation. Got it. Got it. Because because in my experience, we didn't have that conversation. And so to me, that was a very white thing. Again, again, though, this is what I mean. Like, you have to pick apart your own biases and assumptions about race and culture. And so for me, how do I use my role as a casting director to enact some measure of equity, diversity, and inclusion? I can only do it by examining myself and what my assumptions are with every character that I cast. Does that make sense? No, of course. That makes so much sense. I think with anything, the work has to start with you first, understanding what you your patterns of behavior and thought are, and then you can maybe express what you've learned from yourself. It, especially if you're not a trained DEI uh, practitioner, not everybody that's a person of color is an expert on what it means to do anti-racism work. And I agree, it's harmful sometimes when you put that pressure on the soul or the couple of people of color that you happen to have in your orbit. I think the ownership of knowledge should be on everyone. And so putting that pressure on you takes away ownership of responsibility from that person that's asking you. They should be doing research. They should be having multiple conversations and they should be reaching out to all types of people that they know or don't know because you 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 said it perfectly you're it's it's not fair for you to then be the quote unquote expert in your town in the theater space on how to cast the most equitably if there is probably someone else you should pass the mic to someone else that um is more of an expert as a parent sorry go ahead no i was just gonna say really quickly that 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 we need to also allow for mistakes in this conversation. You know what I mean? Yes. I yeah. I will make mistakes um and and how I go about things in in the sense that like there may have been a better way to do something than than the way I chose to do it. That that's always a possibility. So that that to me is something that as people of color, I think we also have to be generous and forgiving with ourselves and each other 
um, about how we move forward, because the only way we can grow is if we're not afraid to make mistakes. Yes, I think as long as we're continuing to do the work and we're doing it with um, purpose and great intentions, but not just good intentions, but learning lessons along the way, I think mistakes might happen, but being able to learn from those mistakes and act quickly to repair any damages being that might be done from those mistakes is important. Um, what I wanted to end with, actually, I was going to ask you about tips for parents. So could you give us a couple quick tips? And then um, the part of the show that I like the most is called Roses and Thorns. And this is where I ask you some good things that might have happened lately and then some thorns or bumps along the way. So maybe let's do a parent edition as a parent of a teen and a preteen. What are some roses lately from being a parent and some thorns that you might've experienced in the last couple of weeks? Wow. Okay. Well, I want to touch on the, um, briefly on just the idea of how to talk to your kids if they want to pursue the arts, because mm, yes. it's very easy for people to, um, shut that conversation down in the face of fear. And what I would say is that I understand the fear. I understand it very, very well, having been both on the receiving end of it and also as a parent. But ultimately, I think it comes to the idea of motivation. And happiness is a great motivator. And so what I want to do is demystify the path of a, a the artistic career to the point that a parent can look at a dream of their child's, right? So if they are dreaming that they want to be, let's say, that they want to be um, a, a visual artist, they want to be a painter. And the, the fact alone that they want to do that is actually quite a huge motivator. And that would speak, it, it, that kind of motivation is going to speak volumes for them in their adult lives. And when things get rough, it is that kind of motivation and that kind of grit that's going to get them through. And so I would encourage every parent to talk as openly as they can about their child's love for whatever that is. Why do they love it? What does it make them feel like? What do they hope they can do with that love? Uh, what, what artists inspire them? What works of art inspire them? Ask those questions. I think that a parent will, and any any elder, not just parents, but anyone who has, um, you know, the responsibility of raising a young person um, can have that conversation. And it's not easy, you know, especially if you think like, oh, come on, we're all lawyers. You have it in your blood. You could be a lawyer. And and it's easy to feel like you don't have the vocabulary to talk to your your child or your you know the young person in your life um, about that love for that art, but try you know be be okay with being uncomfortable and saying the wrong things for the first you know few times that you have that conversation. Eventually, I think you'll start to understand. Um, okay, so bumps. So I'll start with the bumps. Um, so parenting bumps. Boy, oh boy. My kids um, are 
awesome. They're awesome, of course. We all think our kids are awesome, but they fight. <laughs> oh my gosh, they fight and they fight over things like they they want to play different video games, but on the same TV, you know, so they fight over that. <laughs> and that has just been like, oh, <laughs> I mean, you know, when you're indoors and all you hear is yelling and that's just so difficult, you know, just like, why can't you guys just get along? And I have to remind myself, like, you know, siblings fighting, that's totally natural and normal. And that's kind of part of how they're learning to <laughs> deal with people. And, and yes. there's going to be some good that comes out of this eventually. But right now, the fighting is just, uh, it kills my soul. Um <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the, but the good things, the good things. Okay. So my kids, um, and maybe because they are products of two different races. So my husband is white. I'm Asian. They, we have dinner conversations and we have had dinner conversations about racism, about sexism, especially in the last couple months. Um, that I never had because I think, you know, partially because of the time back in the eighties, you didn't really talk about that in the Philippines, <laughs> you know, yeah. Filipinos didn't talk about racism. Um, and, um, but you know, what I realized is that we have opened up a real portal <laughs> for them to connect with us through conversation that they're able to engage with us even when it's awkward, even when it's maybe not right. Like they, they're okay with not being right about things with us. And they'll they'll bring things to us. Like my daughter came to me and said, you know, I saw this TikTok about um, transphobia. And I, what do you think? And we listened to it and we talked about it. And then I didn't know what to say about it. So I called my friend who is the artistic director of the um, the the LGBTQ theater company in town. And we had a conversation with him about it. And, you know, it, it was awkward at times because he had a very clear idea of something that I, you know, that we we were not as clear about. And and um, and even my daughter and I had different ideas about it. So so to me, it's like the fact that we can have those conversations at the dinner table, after breakfast, before, you know, before watching a movie, whatever, like they know that they can have that with us. And I, I'm, I'm really gratified for that. That is so awesome. And again, you've set another example of how you didn't really have the words or the vocabulary to answer the question properly. So you pass the mic in a sense to someone that would be more suited to answering that. And in doing that, you learned a little bit, your daughter and your family learned a little bit more as well. Um, and I think now that we're inside our homes a lot more and we really just have conversations with each other more frequently, those kind of deeper, um, sometimes easily avoidable conversations when we're in the busyness of going here and there, are now being had. And I think that can transform a lot of people and a lot of families. So it's awesome that that's been a positive lately for you and your family. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. 
So I just want to thank you so much for this amazing, I feel like we could talk for hours. I know, <laughs> about right? All things theater. And now I need to look up all of these plays and really get culturally inspired and watch so much more theater. Um, I just want to thank you for showing up and sharing parts of your story on this podcast. Where can people find you on social media or find your um, theater on social media so that they can support you along your story? Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. So on Instagram, I am the nuance 2020. And that's where you can find a little bit about me, but really it's about my interviews with all the artists that I've been fortunate to talk to about their financial experiences. And my theater company is San Diego Repertory Theater. And uh, we are in San Diego. And like almost every other theater right now, we are shut down. So um, any support, if people want to support live theater for when we are back and ready to tell stories, that would be awesome. Yes, yes. Follow her on Instagram and check out her Instagram live interviews where she dispels the myths of what it means to be an artist. Um, Thank you again so much for joining us in this podcast. I'll leave all your information below in the show notes so that you could check it out. And I hope that you have an amazing day. You too, Ogechi. Thank you so, so much. Bye. Bye. Kim had so many nuggets to share in this interview. I love how she talked about unpacking how she herself had been colonized and how she values the importance of affinity spaces. We talk about how representation in media and the arts can look and feel different to each person. As a mom, she shares her 360 perspective on the gift that her father gave her of encouraging her to pursue her own passions. And finally, we learned so many tips and tricks of how the theater space works towards equity in this day and age. I'll leave information about Kim and the San Diego Repertory Theater as well as how you can follow along on our Instagram lives in the show notes below. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to support this episode, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a review and share on social media so others can hear these amazing stories. As always, I hope you have a great day in your own amazing story. 